Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian Podcast. This is Season 1, Episode 1. My name is Dean Jones, the Well-Seasoned Librarian, and today I want to welcome you to our first ever podcast. I'm very lucky today to be speaking with friend and author Terry Barr. Terry is author of several books, Don't Date Baptist, Seasons, I'm Dying, Secrets I'm Dying to Tell You, and We Might as Well Eat. Terry is a professor of English and creative writing at Presbyterian College in Clinton, South Carolina, and a nonfiction essayist and author. His essays have been published in such journals as the Museum of Americana, Blue Lyra Review, Steel Toe Review, Belle Reve Literary Journal, and South Writ Large, amongst other, many others. His essay, A Big-Ass Pot of Blended Soup, was recently nominated by Red Truck Review for the Best of the Net Award. He lives in Greenville, South Carolina with his wife, two daughters, and their beloved pets. I really had a great time um, talking to Terry. I know him mainly uh, from being a fellow writer on Medium. Um, the uh, he, He's published many essays on um, food and its relationship to us and his experiences um, throughout his life. Uh, he writes very biogra- biographical essays, and his work is very inviting. It really brings you in. You really feel not only that you know Terry and his relatives and friends, but you know the area. Uh, never being having been to South Carolina and parts of the South that he's writing about, I now feel very familiar with these places. He really is a wonderful writer, and I want to encourage you to read his work, which is available on Amazon.com, or read his uh, material on Medium as well. So now, without further ado, I'd like to take you to the podcast. I hope you enjoy it. We had a good time talking. I could have talked to Terry all day. Thank you very much, and look forward to having you hear us. Okay. Um, hi, this is Dean Jones with the Well Seasoned Library podcast. I want to thank you for joining us. My guest today is Terry Barr. He is a writer and he is a thrice nominated Pushcart, Pushcart Prize essayist, originally from Bessemer, Alabama. His essay collections, Don't, Take ba- Don't Date Baptists, We Might As Well Eat, and Secrets I'm Dying to Tell You are published by Red Hawk Publications and are available on Amazon. His work has been published in Story South, Under the Sun, The New Southern Fugitives, Hippocampus, Emory's Journal, Deep South Magazine, Volume 1 Brooklyn, and The Better Southerner. He writes regularly for Medium.com on music, food, and Southern culture, and he lives with his wife, Millie, and his Carolina wild dog, Max, in Greenville, South Carolina. Welcome, Terry. Thanks, Dean. It's good to be with you. So, um... I've been, um, I just finished Secret, um, We Might As Well Eat, and I'm just starting on Secrets I'm Dying to Tell You, and I love them both. And I've been following you, as you know, on Medium, um, under One Table, One World, and I've read your um, other articles about music. So um, I wanted to ask you if you could tell me a little bit about how you got into writing and um, how you came to write your books. I know that's kind of a a broad topic, but I thought we'd start off with the biggest one. It's a good one to start with. Um, so this past weekend, I talked to one of my oldest childhood friends, and I was telling him the story that 
when we were in high school, we took, we were always taking English classes. I didn't be an English major then, but our teachers who taught literature and writing were always the most exciting teachers and the ones that we loved the best. And so they had us write stories. Um, so I wrote a story, I stood off of a Bugs Bunny cartoon where Bugs Bunny meets the devil and has to go down into hell. A very harrowing story. So I wrote a story with that premise and we had to read it out to class. And I read my story and the teacher looked at me afterwards and said, that's really good. But more than anything else, my best friend turned to me with this look in his eye like he didn't really know me anymore and that I was more than he ever thought I was. And I just remember him saying, that was really good. And I, if I can please him, well, you know, I was, like, what, 15 at that point. And I would keep dabbling just here and there and writing, you know, poetry and fiction. But it was only in the 1990s that I started thinking a little more seriously about writing nonfiction. I had a colleague who was a creative writer. She was very encouraging. So I had a couple of pieces published back then. Then I did some mixture of creative writing and history and wrote about uh, the history of my, the Jews in my town of Bessemer, Alabama, and also wrote wrote a piece on my rabbi, who was one of the clerics that Martin Luther King wrote the letter from Birmingham jail to. And so with that, I started kind of synthesizing the idea of writing about the people that I knew, the place that I lived in, who I was. And then in 2008, I took a great leap and I wanted to go to Prague and I'd wanted to take a workshop in creative writing. And lo and behold, there was a workshop in creative nonfiction in Prague. So my college paid for me to go there one summer. And I spent about 10 days working with Patricia Foster from the Iowa Writing Workshop on creative nonfiction. And I'd had a bunch of things that I'd been writing to work on uh, with her. But I really developed a piece called Eating Chinese in that workshop. And that shows up in We Might As Well Eat. And it's all about my mother trying to cook a Chinese meal for us when I was a kid. Yes. And other than my little brother, everyone hating it. And my poor father looking at the stuff on his plate. Because they would go out to eat Chinese, but he would always order things like Southern Fried Chicken. And so he looked at this Chinese meal, and he was the kind of man who liked to put ketchup on everything, and he just couldn't figure out what to do with this meal. So he came to the table, made himself a peanut butter sandwich, and I left with him and peanut butter too. So I, I got a lot of good feedback back on that piece, and that just kind of launched me and gave me the bug, I guess it were. And so I really started working on essays uh, more seriously in whatever time I had from teaching. And then maybe in 2014, I started thinking I've got enough for an essay collection. And let me see how I can put those together. And that was Don't Date Baptist, which was more about Bessemer and some of the one family that I knew in Bessemer and some of the stranger tales that I'd been told as a kid and, and some I'd even witnessed, like the family who lived next door, whom I considered to be well, I considered the matriarch of that family to be a witch, 
And sure enough, they helped catch our house on fire one night. And oh. then eventually that woman died and was the first person I ever knew who was cremated. And part of that story was about her cremation and having her ashes thrown from a plane all across Bessemer, which in my way of looking at it was uh, the curse of Bessemer. And Bessemer has never been the same and declined ever since then. So that was how the whole writing thing really started. Even though I'd always dabbled, I really got serious roughly in 2008. So I, I really loved that story that you mentioned about your mom cooking the Chinese dinner. And because I empathize with that quite a bit. And you put a lot of, um, when you write about your family and you write about the experiences you have, you, have, you, you write really relatable stories. And I often wonder how your family might feel about some of these stories that are being written. Because I know when I write just a medium, if I write a recipe and I have an introduction on my grandmother or my mother, I oftentimes get feedback and people will comment and they'll say, well, it's not like that, or it wasn't like this, or they might even be offended. So what are you going through um, with some of your books? Have you received any feedback, um, be it positive, negative, whatever? It's like, like, are people very critical of what you write about them? Well, the, the chief critic was my mother. Now, my mother passed away in 2018. As you'll see, secrets in the story, Secrets I'm Dying to Tell You, she actually said at some point, well, you've told all my secrets now. And she was on her deathbed at that point. And I'm going, not sure that I really did because I don't want to give anything away. But on her deathbed, my daughters asked her to tell them the strangest thing that had ever happened to my mother and she did and that eventually becomes a story um so my mother though was was a real critic and one of one of the issues I always had with her was that when I would write something she would call me up and before even telling me whether she liked it or not she would say well in that story that you wrote you've got this detail wrong or that that's not what happened. And I always thought that that was just her way of trying to maintain some kind of control over what was going on. Uh, I know that she loved the stories, but she also got a little upset when I would write. I did write about a couple of people that she wished that I hadn't written about. And so it, it is a dilemma. Do you ask people should write these stories or do you just write them? And what I've learned is that I have to be more thick skinned about some of the feedback. So my, my mother again said that there was a woman she went to church with and I didn't know, but this woman was the older sister of a girl that I wrote about in my first collection, a girl that I'd gone to elementary with and my mother kept saying she's going to read that one day and she's going to be offended and I said well I don't think she should be offended because I'm the one who acted like an asshole in that story and while I, I wrote very clearly about what a what a sad life this girl seemed to have to me I'm the one that did her wrong so I she should not well I, you know I can't say anyone should not be offended but I kind of thought see that aspect. But I have gotten into some other issues with my wife's family for 
telling secrets that perhaps I shouldn't have told. Um, I would tell, I guess I could tell you, I don't know, that secret is kind of out that my wife's family secret to get out, but it did. Have you ever um, wrote about somebody um, that came to a book, a book signing or a, a book uh, where you've spoke or read about things in public? Well, almost. Um, so a few summers ago, I was doing a book signing at the weekend of the Bessemer High School reunion. And I wasn't part of the class that was reuniting, but there were there were a lot of people that I knew. So we had gone to have dinner at the Bright Star, which is the oldest restaurant in Alabama still serving. And it's in Bessemer, a Greek-owned restaurant. It's just excellent. You and I should go there one day and do a, do a story about it. But um, I would love that. Actually, I, I looked it up and I was thinking, I really want to go here. And like, and, and I, I would love to go there with you and ride that up. It'd be amazing. Well, we, we should plan that. That would be such a cool thing to do. I would do that. Let's do that. So, yeah, so I was told that in, I think it's in Don't Date Baptist, I wrote about a story about all the grandmothers, my grandmother and some of the other women that I considered almost my grandmother. And one of the women that I was writing about was no, was no longer alive, but when we were in the Bright Star before that book signing, her daughters were both there. And I found out that they were so angry about the way I wrote about their mother that they let one of my best friends have it in the restaurant. Now, they didn't have the nerve to come say anything to me. I apparently walked right by them and didn't even notice them. But they were so angry, and I'm not sure why they didn't come on to the book signing and just kill me or yell at me or, or whatever, but they could have, and in part because I referred, I didn't initiate this, but someone that I knew said that their mother had a smile like a gargoyle. And so I just, I, I don't see, I don't imagine that's very flattering, but I used it because it was such a telling detail. But I also thought I wrote again, very movingly about what this woman meant to the church, where we went, what she meant to my grandmother and our family, what her daughter meant. So, you know, you, you hear what you wanna hear and I don't think I would change doing that story, but I've, I've learned that, I've had to learn the hard way that when I think I'm writing sensitively, it might not come across that way. Well, I mean, I think too, isn't it true that uh, people will criticize, but then they want you to write more? <laughs> yeah, well, that, that is so true. My wife's family is all about, write the good stuff about us. So, well, no one wants to read something that's just good, right? Yeah. There, you gotta have conflict. And oh, well, no, we don't want, so, okay. It's, it's please write about us, but only what we want you to write about. And I said, well, I can't, no, I'm not doing that. I, you know, I love to tell the stories, but they've got to have all these elements. Well, my introduction to your writing um, was kind of backwards in a way, because I think the first things I read about you was you were writing about foods in the back East, like I think in delicatessens and some of the experience with like uh, ethnic Jewish food. And then I, I learned about some, it's funny too, because I, I kept encouraging you 
about writing. I'm like, this guy is really good. He should write a book. And you're like, um, yeah, I have several actually. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a horrible promoter of my own work. Uh, I just hate that. I, I always feel like I'm, you know, this is odd because I have to teach. And so I'm on, you know, either live or on camera with students all the time, but I so worry that I'm droning on and boring people. And I keep thinking, okay, well, people will find my books if they want to. I I just can't sit around telling you all this stuff about them, except in situations like this, where it's really fun. And I just feel like I'm talking to you about, you know, my books and my stories. But yeah, I, I didn't, I just kept writing on him. I kept thinking, okay, this is fun. And I would just forget. My wife will say, why don't you do some promotion of your books? I'm like, well, you know, I I just, my father always told me you shouldn't talk about yourself all the time, that that was, that was your ego. And so you should be more humble. And I'm in therapy. I'm still in therapy. I've been in therapy for three decades. And my new therapist keeps saying, we got to work on that issue with you about, this self-deprecation and this this false humility. So I don't know that it's false, but I do have to talk a little bit more about the things that I'm proud of. And so he's always encouraging me and my wife is always encouraging me. You're really good. You should tell more about this. And I'm thinking, okay, I, I, I will try to. So when you said, let's do a podcast, I thought, well, here's a way to do that and, and be very positive. And I want you to know, my wife is really excited and my therapist is going to be just over the moon that I'm doing this. Well, I'm very excited to talk to you. I think I've been wanting to talk to you since, you know, I first touched base with you, you know, through medium and just, I really have loved your article so much. And I think it goes on to the next question is that, you know, I think that in my life throughout my travels, um, food has been a touchstone stone for me. It's, it's something that you can always talk to people about. And even if like you come from different parts of the country, if you come from different backgrounds and walks of life, there's always some commonality over food. So was that your experience? Because you write a lot about food and food is very visceral for you. Like I know that in your book, um, you might as well eat when you write about greens and beans. Now, my family's not from where you're from. They're from Texas and um, Arkansas, but like there's some visceral connection there. When you talk about food in the South, I immediately like have a connection. When you talked about delicatessen food, I was like, I get that so much. Just like the articles about your your music writing and you write about the, the concerts you've been to, I really feel that like I've been there because I, I, I have some like relatable experiences. So do you find that you really go for some of the stuff that's very connectable in the human experience? Yeah, I I wouldn't have been conscious that that's what I was doing. I just wanted to write about those deep memories, the connections with family. So food was always one of them. We, my household was pretty regimented by my mother. We're going to have lunch at this time. We're going to have supper this time. And it's going to be something that she's created for every meal. It's never going to be TV dinners or takeout. She's going to, she saw as her role as wife and mother that she needed to feed us, feed us good food, feed us a variety of food. And I always wanted be there at the table. Even if as a little kid, I didn't really care for the vegetables that much. I always knew there was going to be something for me that 
I would love. And I would stay in the kitchen with her. I would watch her make biscuits with her, do whatever I could to be her helper because I found the kitchen to be an exciting place where things happened. And watching her coordinate, coordinate a meal was just amazing to me. And so I learned a lot. I learned about, as I write about in, in Don't Date Baptist, uh, there were certain things that she cooked that were important. Uh, same thing and We Might As Well Eat. Uh, from the kind of baking powder that she insisted that you had to use or you were a fool if you didn't use anything else uh, to the kind of Southern lunches, uh, particularly Sunday lunches that we have. And so one of my great, one of my favorite memories is we would have a tremendous Sunday lunch, usually roast beef, with all sorts of vegetables. And then four hours later, we would go see my Jewish grandmother where we would have this enormous supper full of all this deli stuff. And I think this is why I was overweight as a kid. This had to be why I was overweight as a kid. You just can't eat all this food. And my metabolism was too slow anyway, but we would gather around the table for all these meals. You could not go sit and watch TV while you ate. You had to be at the table. And you know this, at the table with all this food, this is where stories are going to start popping out. So it all made sense to me at some point. You cook, you eat, you tell stories, and you do it almost every time you come together. And I found this such a time of joy. And so then I started thinking about, isn't it wonderful that you can have Southern vegetables, you can have um, hot pastrami, and all the things that go between it, and you can see the culture coming out in people, and that they are eating what they know, just like just like you're supposed to buy local honey, you're always supposed to eat the food that you know that has always nourished you and nurtured you, and so it seemed like the most natural thing in the world to keep writing about, and I wouldn't have I wouldn't have predicted this back in even 30 years ago when I first started out. But when I started working on these books, I knew that what I wanted to write about was how my family negotiated food and meals and the other issues, some of the darker issues even in our world. I've read um, some books over the last few years by Augustine Burroughs and David Siddharth who talk about their lives growing up in the South. Um, in fact, oftentimes, I think I, I thought both of those authors were, you know, veteran New Yorkers, and then they were both um, very open about writing about their families and disclosing that they were from the South, and, they're, and they would write about their experiences there growing up in the South. And I was wondering if, if, it, if there are any Southern writers um, that have influenced your writing that have kind of um, kind of contributed to your your voice or your narrative. Yeah, well, you mentioned two good ones right from the start. I, I've I've certainly been a David Sedaris fan for decades now, it, it seems. But so just randomly, as I think of them, um, Rick Bragg was a big influence on me, and when I first started reading him, um, and I would read him in the back of Southern Living, and then I would read. I think I've read every one of his books at this point, and I loved his way of just talking about pe people. I don't know that anyone talks about people as vividly and as uh, 
with such texture as Rick does about the people that he knows of. So he's certainly one that some of the classics, Faulkner and uh, Flannery O'Connor would be two others. Uh, it was Faulkner, it was taking a Southern Lit course in college that made me understand that I wanted to be an English major and wanted to go on and teach. Because when I read Faulkner, I've told this story a lot. When I read a story by Faulkner, I, I think it was called Red Leaves was the first story I read by him. I felt like I was standing in my backyard and that someone was writing about me standing in my backyard, looking at the way things looked with the certain slants of light that Faulkner talks about with just the ground. And Alabama from looks, of course, just almost exactly like Mississippi or Georgia in its layout and its in its landscape. And when I read Faulkner, I thought, I didn't know anyone wrote about the South like this. I just didn't know that. Maybe I was naive, but I didn't catch on. And so they really influenced me. Reading To Kill a Mockingbird the first time really influenced me. One of my favorite authors right now, uh, she lives in Virginia, but I think she went, I uh, lived in North Carolina, Lee Smith, just an incredible writer. Um, and, you know, on and on and on. Richard Wright, Eudora Welty, all, all the classic Southern writers. And some, including Mary Carr, who lived in Texas, of course, helped influence me to write about the conflicts in my life. You know, I, I you, you made me think of another question. And then it's, it's weird because like when I see the South represented in films and on media of any type, even including literature, but oftentimes the only positive influences I'm seeing are often uh, from literature. Because I mean, movies sometimes will, will hit it on, on the head, but not always. Usually it's a misfire or just a cartoon version. Mm -hmm. So what do you think of, you know, as a person from the South, lives in the South, what do you think of the interpretation? Because I, I tried to, I'll, I'll, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll end to that. I just want to say when I talk to people that are from Europe and they're, they, and they're like usually confused because the only narrative they have in the South is something negative, like, you know, deliverance or some caricature on a TV show. So how do you feel about yeah. the way it's portrayed? Well, there are things I try to get. <laughs> and the portrayals of the South. And so name a few things that I probably wouldn't wouldn't see and wouldn't want to see. But I will tell you about the things that I love, have seen. One is a slightly older film. Well, it is an older film from the 70s. Uh, he just died, Larry McMurtry, the adaptation of The Last Picture Show, one of my all-time favorite films. Uh, we'll consider Texas part of the South. It certainly was in the Confederacy. But when I look at that film, it looks like a small town I went to college in in Montevallo. It looks kind of like where I teach now in Clinton. But the way Larry McMurtry captured those Southerners and their lives, their, their desperate lives and lives that they couldn't help but live, I thought really caught what it's like to have grown up and lived in the 50s and 60s, particularly. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker. 
you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Go to the next question. So um, when you were talking about um, learning to make biscuits with your grandmother and when you've talked in your book, um, we might as well eat about your own cooking for people and the pleasure that it gives you. What are some of the um, influences you had growing up as far as cooking goes and developing your own kind of style as a cook and who you are today? Well, uh, I've been thinking about that question and I think the best way I can answer that is to show you this book. It's called The Cotton Country Collection. And it's still in print. My brother keeps finding copies to give to uh, my daughters and everyone he knows, but this was my mother's Bible as far as cooking. And I have her copy. I, I would bring it out, but it's just so falling apart. But that's the first cookbook she ever gave me right after I married almost 40 years ago. And she said, everything you need to know is in this book. It's published from the Junior League of Monroe, Louisiana. And I've learned everything from most, the simplest things like salmon croquettes to jambalaya to where I developed both my red beans and rice recipe and my Key West black beans recipe. All this is found in this cookbook and so much more. And it's just a fun cookbook to look through and to see the richness of Southern cooking and Southern life. Uh, so it's almost like reading a cultural history of the South just to look at this one. And so my mother who loved to cook, when she passed on this cookbook, and she certainly passed on others, but this one was the one I took almost as if she were giving me the family Bible to keep. And so I, I, I first started everything looking at this. And then when I tried to be a little healthier, I, I got a copy of the Moosewood cookbook. And so I just kind of yin and yanged it from that point uh, thinking about what did I grow up eating? And if I could think of something, it was probably in this particular cookbook. And then later on, I would, as my mother started watching the Food Network, she would tell me about these other big chefs she was watching. And so I would then order the cookbooks by Emeril or Mario Batali and, and kind of keep up with them. But I also, when I wanted to know more about more ethnic cuisines uh, beyond what my mother liked, I, I would start looking for things like the Second Avenue Deli cookbook, which I love. And, and really one of my favorite, favorite cookbooks though is Emerald's Louisiana Real and Rustic. It's, it's kind of like a can't go wrong if you're gonna try to cook that way. Uh, so I would share all this with her. She would call me up and say, have you seen this? I go, no, and have you seen this? And, and so forth. But uh, the, my earliest memories, this Cotton Country cookbook and her, her copy of The Joy of Cooking, which is from her wedding, I still have too. What I would find, and I think I wrote about this on Medium at one point, was when I'd go through her cookbooks, just like the one that I held up, you can see all these recipes that I've stuck in here. And that's the way her cookbooks always were too. Just, they were stuffed full of things that she would find. And so when she died and I got her books, I started sifting through 
all these recipes and I found things that were 60, 70 years old in there. So I've tried a lot of those recipes from her apricot brandy pound cake to some of the other things that she's cooked. So I, I feel like I'm not just cooking a meal when I'm doing something from this cookbook or those recipes. I feel like I'm recreating my life at that point. I feel a little bit of like James Joyce at this point, but it is the way it feels. You just recreate life out of life. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's great because through food writing, I've found a lot of touchstones through my life. And just growing up, my family didn't always talk about this out. So reading like, I started reading books by, by Michael Twitty and John Edge, and they talk about stuff. And like, I remember in the Michael Twitty book recently, he was talking about a relative who would take cornbread and crumble it in a glass and pour buttermilk over it and eat it with a spoon. I'm like, that must, my dad used to do that when I was a kid. That's something yeah. I grew up with. And Or sorghum. Like I, I remember my grandpa would visit Arkansas and always bring us back little gift jugs of sorghum. And I'm like, I loved it. And just, you forget about things like that. And I was wondering, you know, right now there's a resurgence on writing about Southern food culture and it's very politicized. What are your, do you have any views on that stuff that's been going on lately? You know, I've looked a little bit at that. I know that uh, John Edge, as you mentioned, kind of has gotten on the outs with um, the Southern Foodways Alliance. And they, I think it's true that in that alliance and in some of his work, he was not promoting or giving enough credit to African-American food culture. Oddly enough, on he he's done a show on the SEC network um, called True South, where he goes to different small towns. He went to Bessemer uh, for the first episode and and did a show from the Bright Star. But he goes to these places and finds these little restaurants, these hole in the wall places that are still there and have all this history and culture. And many of the places he goes to are multi ethnic. Uh, and African-American food food stops that he, I think he did one from Nashville on a hot chicken place, for instance. And so I didn't realize he was getting into trouble with the, with the Alliance. And I felt that was too bad because it seemed like to me he was doing a job of trying to promote everyone. But maybe he was just, as many people do, too much in control and perhaps, I don't know for sure, appropriating things that he shouldn't appropriate. But, but I, I think just like in some of the troubles that we have politically, we're not willing enough sometimes to talk about the influences and the confluence of our different cultures. So cornbread is a good example. There are as many ways to cook cornbread as there are many kinds of people. And I can remember how the woman who worked for us, Dicey, made cornbread and my mother made, corn, made cornbread. And I've got maybe eight books up here with different people talking about just cornbread and what they do with it. And to me, that's a unifier. But yes, you do have to kind of give credit to what is cornbread. It was a poor person's food that they, they made in, when they didn't have anything else to, to kind of cook. And so there was a good essay somewhere on the difference between cornbread and biscuits in the socioeconomic way that I read. Yeah, I remember my grandmother from Texas, she always made cornbread. My grandmother from Arkansas didn't 
almost ever make cornbread, although I know she knew how to make it. And I think there was some association with class on it. And my mother's side of the family, they were like very like working class and they were like, they didn't care. So we would have Swiss steak for dinner. And then my grandmother would make fried rice, cornbread and beans. And it was this weird (laughs) melange of foods. But my, my grandmother always had beans. She always served with everything. So no matter what we're eating, there's going to be beans on the table. Yeah. We always had cornbread and my grandfather would mush it up on his plate and eat it because of his teeth. So I I don't know. Just, I think there was, and her, when I had her cornbread, it was always very flat. It was never fluffy like you get at, you know, at a restaurant nowadays. It wasn't a muffin. It was right. like very, very solid. <laughs> well, that's the kind of cornbread I made over this weekend. And I got, I've got one of the cookbooks I like to use is a book from Savannah. And so it was a Savannah style cornbread, but you made it in your cast iron skillet and it did come out. It was a little denser and a little harder, but we were having a birthday party for some of our Persian friends in town. You know, my wife is Persian. And so a couple of weeks ago for the Persian new year, we went over to these friends house and they cooked the traditional Persian meal which is this kind of dill and mint flavored rice with some kind of seafood. They had salmon, but salmon's not indigenous to the Caspian Sea, so normally you use whitefish. So it was this elaborate Persian meal, and they had all these different Persian foods, so delicious and so good, and we ate and we enjoyed. So I had them over here, and I made a Savannah-style gumbo and cornbread. And when we sat down, and one of my one of these these guys, these Persian men, looked. And I said, "Oh, and here's the cornbread." He said, "We have cornbread," and his eyes lit up. And I thought, "You see, that's exactly it. It transcends culture. You know, it doesn't matter who you are. There are just certain foods that, no matter what your color, your walk of life, your background, are just good. And if we can accept that these are good, why can't we accept that we have so much more to learn?" But I think to go back to one of the questions you asked at the beginning, food is our entryway into understanding each other and liking each other and realizing that politics don't matter as much as what brings us together and what we share. I remember um, we, I made Italian food for a gathering and uh, one of the guests was from the deep South and I had made a baked polenta to be served with like, uh, you know, it had cheese baked into it. And I remember he took a bite and he looked around and I don't think he knew I was around him, but he said to his wife, he goes, this is some sorry ass cornbread. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, I was going to say too, that your recipes and your writing are pretty damn inspiring. Oh, thank and you. I've got several of yours books. I've, from your scones to your more recent hot cross buns. And, and, uh, I, and, and I think the last one I read is your black and white cookie that I just read this morning. And thank yeah. you. Yeah. I, I love writing and I love finding recipes and I've got a huge cookbook library. I continually pour through. So it's always fun to share stuff. I love sharing stuff with people. It's just the best and hearing about it with people getting the yeah. feedback. Oh, um, now, Culturally, you know, when you write about, you know, people around the table and the importance of communal eating, you know, I know that in, I know that you've traveled a bit, so you've been all over the United States, as far as I understand. And 
when you're when you're visiting the west coast do you denote like any differences as far as sitting down eating and how people view it because i feel like here on the west coast we don't take it very seriously it's very like getting the kids to sit down and commit to eating is very hard and getting them to talk like i like to sit and eat for an hour and talk mm -hmm. and like you know even after we're through eating talking and have it be a communal experience but Getting Westerners to do that seems very hard nowadays. It's it's almost like they don't understand what you're doing. Do you see a difference there? Well, you probably see it more than I do because when I've gone to the West Coast, particularly, uh, I've either visited Persians, and Persian for per, Persians are very Southern. I have to say, in their manners, their politeness, their formality. And when you sit down to a Persian meal, you just got to plan on being there for a while, but that's not uncommon for me. So we had these Persian relatives in Seattle, for instance, and that was always what meals were like. We were all around the table. It was, it was elaborate. Uh, but I also have friends in the, in the Bay area, except for the friends I have in the Bay area, the, the husband of, of the couple is originally from the South. And so when we visited them, I, uh, they are aren't quite as formal but we sat outside it was it was a beautiful time of year uh they had this outdoor table all set for us we sat there we ate we talked and so really dean i thought if i just closed my eyes i would have thought i was on my own porch uh eating for that matter so i just haven't i haven't experienced that kind of informality on the West Coast. But I've heard, certainly I've heard other people talking about you people make in the South, particularly make meal time into some kind of weird ritual. And go, well, yeah, well, it is. That, that's what it is. Food is a ritual. And in, I don't know if it's weird or not, but I, we certainly have ritualized it. You know, you bring me, you bring up something else. I think I've been, I miss about the South, and is that when I lived in Texas, people would just say, "Hey, you want to come over?" And you'd come over to their house. You'd bring like a six pack, or you'd bring a pizza, or whatever, and like you'd hang out and you just talk, and it would be like a nice little gathering. You'd have a good time. Sometimes they're like, "Oh, they'd invite the neighbors over. They'd invite their cousins. You'd have like twenty people there, and it would be like an impromptu party." And I enjoyed the hell out of that. And then in the in the Bay Area, though, if you say, let's get together to somebody, they're like, they're whipping out their day planner. <laughs> <laughs> and they want to go, what do you want? And they want to know why you want to get together with them. They're, they're suddenly interrogating you. Like, why do you want to spend time with me? What's your agenda? And, you, and you're like, <laughs> and so it's weird because like I would meet people I'd like that I just knew for five minutes. I'm like, hey, let's get together and like hang out. And then in the, the Bay Area, it's like, why why do you want to <laughs> well it, it just this last friday night we had some old friends that we met in lama's class when our first daughter was was you know trying to be born um they now live in upstate new york but they were back here visiting and they let us know like two days ahead of time that they were coming and there was another couple involved who live here too and so we were all thinking about getting together and so the big debate was, are we going to go to a restaurant? Well, my wife and I have not been inside a restaurant since the pandemic. We've gotten some takeout, but even though we're fully vaccinated, we're still slowly working ourselves. And I'm not sure I want to be inside a really closed space 
right now. So there was some debate. And finally, I just said, y'all just come over here. We don't have time to cook the kind of meal we'd like to. So we'll get takeout, but let's just hang out. And then the couple from New York said, well, can we invite this other other guy that used to hang out? Of course, bring him on over. And so we sat out for almost three hours on our porch. We ate, we drank, and it felt like what we had done 20 years ago when they all lived here. And we would gather almost every Friday night at somebody's house. And after it was over, my wife said, that was so much better than going out to any restaurant. So yeah, of course it was better because we were relaxed. We were in an environment where no one was asking us what we wanted or trying to push us out the door. And again, that's what I've grown up with because my family was the type, particularly my grandmother, if someone showed up at your house, not only would you feed them, but if it was close to mealtime, you would say, just pull up a chair. And, you know, the poor person cooking would have to figure out what's going on here. But, you know, how these kind of meals go, you're usually making twice as much as you need anyway. So yeah, people show up, you invite them in, you know, it, it becomes a party. Yeah, I don't remember my grandmother ever making less food than was required. <laughs> you could always have two of the people over and it wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have affected anything yeah know? yeah and that by the way is also what persians do too if you make a persian meal you're going to eat it for a week we have some delightful especially even in the area where i live which is outside just outside of the bay area in the san joaquin valley we have a lot of really wonderful uh persian restaurants we have a very large bahai uh, community here. Mm -hmm. And some of the Persian restaurants are just outstanding. Some of the best eating we've ever had. That's good to hear. We do have a Persian restaurant here in Greenville. It's so odd to think little Greenville, South Carolina is a Mecca for Persian food. But So now the last couple of questions, these are going to be kind of tricky. So uh, how do you make a pot of beans? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I've learned the, the wonders of camellia beans from the New Orleans area. So when the pandemic hit, I was ordering all my camellia beans and I particularly love the kidney beans. The little red beans are fine too. So I get them right, you know, dried beans. I soak them overnight. Um, and then depending on my mood, what am I gonna put in those beans? Always onions, but what kind of pepper? And so that's, that's always an interesting question. And then the central part for me really though, is the sausage. How am I gonna handle the sausage? Because it, you know, sometimes it depends on who's coming over and how they're gonna feel about it. So do I get, do I go hardcore? My favorite sausage is from Alabama. It's called Conecuh sausage from Conecuh County, Alabama. And I can buy it up here in South Carolina, which is cool but they have a, just a plain hickory smoked and then they have the hot one. And so I love to use that sausage. And so I get the beans cooking. Uh, I think I'll let them cook for at least a couple of hours till they get soft. And then I add in the sausage. There's usually a bunch of onion, of course, in, in the beans too. And so when the beans start to get soft and are getting ready, I put the sausage in. I, I may have sauteed it a little bit beforehand just to get it a little more flavor. Um, and then the spices, there's bay leaves, there's garlic, uh, depending again on how crazy I might feel. But that is my that is my go-to red beans recipe. And 
the strange thing, I don't understand why, but on Medium, the story that I've written that seems to have made the most money and gotten the most attention was that red beans recipe. And every month, if you don't know about Medium, you know, you accumulate money each month from the popularity of your stories. And for the last year, that red bean story is always in the top three. And I keep thinking, who keeps reading the story? And why is the story so popular? But there's something about red beans that just gets to the core of who we are. It's funny because it really, it's such an amazingly culture crossing soul food. And it's so wonderful. Like I've always said, people say, what's your last meal? What do you want to eat? And I'm like, I want some beans and a few tortillas and I'm good. That's all I need. And they're like, you're kidding. You don't want lobster. You don't want steak. I'm like, no, that's all I okay. want. Some beans and some, some tortillas. And well, that, I was going to say that was the wonderful thing about this plate. I wrote about this in, in I, I think it's in We Might As Well Eat, uh, finding this little general store in Floyd, Virginia, that for lunch had pinto beans and, and greens and cornbread. Yes, and yes, I, I read that, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and so I looked at my wife and said, that is the only thing I want right now. I, I can't believe we found the one place that's going to have this. Because, yeah, my grandmother, my mother's mother, that was one of her favorite things. And I think I mentioned in the story, she liked to eat it either with short ribs or with backbone meat. And just saying those words makes me crave that. And so I, I don't know either. It's just, once again, it's, it's like country music. I didn't know that I really liked country music until, uh, I don't want to say recently, but I've always liked it, but it just didn't seem cool to say you liked it because right. it is literally the first music I ever heard. And so when I think about that, I think about how my family, as odd as it is to have a mixed Gentile Jewish family, country music, beans, greens, cornbread. Even my dad would eat all this stuff. Yeah. I'm lucky. I Nearby where I work, there's a kind of a renaissance going on with soul food kitchens popping up all over Oakland. Mm -hmm. And it's just fantastic because I can just go a few blocks in any direction and get some pretty wonderful, you know, food. So I'm really lucky. Mm. That's only been recently, like the past five years. Before that, you know, it wouldn't have been around. Well, I, I think, yeah, that is something that's happening throughout the country. Of course, living down here, there's always a meat and three or soul food place, no matter where I've been to want to go to. Uh, we've got OJ's Diner here in Greenville. And, you know, it's as soon as I decide to go back into a place, it's going to be one of the first I go to. Yeah, I miss eating in restaurants. It's It's been so long. It seems like 10 years now, but it, I know it's not been, but it's just, God, it seems like forever. And uh, so the next question, the last question I want to ask you is uh, one I like to ask everybody. And it's, a, it's an old tried and true question, but I love it because it, it shows a lot about a person. So if you could have a dinner party and invite five people living or dead to it, and it could be anybody, including uh, historical figures. And what, who would you invite and what would you serve? So five. <laughs> um, Roughly. Well, I, yeah, I, I mentioned William Faulkner a while ago. He would be there for sure. 
um, my grandmother, my mother's mother would be there. Uh, she died when I was 15. And I just didn't get to talk to her enough. She was such an influence on my life. Uh, she was the type of woman that if she took me out shopping to buy me clothes and we were in a department store, I'd, I called her nanny, I'd say, nanny, I, can I get this record? And she would, she would just look around and I knew she was strapped for money. And one time she said, I just don't have any money. I said, well, just check it. Because to me, if you just wrote a check, that's all you had to do. Right. <laughs> and she would, she would finally pull out of her pocketbook that little folded checkbook of hers and write out a check for $3 or whatever. So she bought me my first Beatles record oh, wow. uh, doing that. Yeah. And I, I've still got it. It was yesterday and today with, with of course, that classic song. So she would, she would be there too, because I would love to ask her more questions about her early life. She was an antique dealer. She just traveled and really fascinating person. So she'd be the second person. Oh my God. I would probably, I would pick my third grade teacher, Miss Horton, because I found that she was the person who was the most encouraging teacher I'd ever had up until that point. And I did like my teachers overall, but I keep thinking about what it was like for this very young woman to come to a new place and to try to teach. And so I think she had, she gave me confidence. She really liked me. So I, I would, I would add her. Um, I would probably, I would probably have my brother over too, because we've become such good friends over the last few years and he's living up in Virginia and I don't get to have him enough. And then I would, I would probably have to invite James Joyce uh, because he is my all time favorite author and anyone who can write like the mind works or at least try to do that. I would want to hear more of. So I think we'd have a lively time. And what would I make? I think I would make, I think I would make a big pot of gumbo for us all. I, I think it would be a, a, basically a seafood gumbo and I would have a lot of crab meat and some fresh golf shrimp if I could get it. And then, yeah, a big pan of cornbread. I'd probably make a couple of kinds of cornbread. I would make some fluffier cornbread for those who don't like the dense kind. And then I would get out my victuals book by Ronnie Lundy and make some kind of hardcore Appalachian cornbread for us. And then if that isn't enough, I would have either some bread pudding or perhaps some uh, baked custard for dessert uh, that may be a little heavy on the vanilla. Oh, that sounds lovely. Oh my God, that sounds wonderful. You so know, if I, you come over, I should I should have included you. So you're invited too. I hope you know. I would be you, there in a heartbeat. That sounds amazing. I would yeah. eat all. That sounds so good. I really want to come to visit you, and I want to go to the star. What is it? The Star Diner. It's the Bright Star. Bright Star. Sorry. Yeah, I want to go there. That it just sounds. You captivated my imagination. I, I already have it like in my brain, as a fantasy place to go to. It just sounds wonderful. No, well, we took my son-in-law there and he, he's kind of a, a tough critic and he loved it. So um, I, 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 would, I want us to do that. So however we can make it work, I'm up for it. Well, if you ever come out here and visit, God, I would have a hard time figuring where to take you, but 
there is a place called the uh, tradition, the original uh, chicken and waffles, and uh, it's Ooh. in Oakland, and it's just fantastic, and I think you would love it. Well, I'd love to do it because our friends out there do live in Oakland, so uh, and we were talking to them a couple of weeks ago, and I know we want to come out there again. So when we get that trip going, I'll let you know. And oh, I, be fabulous. I, I love our connection. Yeah, thank you. I, I could talk to you all day, sir. Thank you very much. Well, I appreciate that. This has been fun. Okay, well, thank you very much. And this is uh, Dean Jones, the well-seasoned librarian, signing off. Thank you very much. for joining us with our interview with Terry Barr. It was a wonderful interview and I would have liked to have been able to talk to him a lot longer. It was a great conversation and he made uh, interviewing him very easy. I'd like you to ask you to join us next week. Our guest will be Zine Nee from Zine in Real Life, a blog on YouTube, and also uh, Zine Eats is her other blog and um, that'll be a great conversation we'll have next Monday. Look forward to talking with her then. This podcast is supported by funds from our sponsors and donations from our listeners. If you wish to donate, simply go to the donation box on the website and click to add money. We appreciate any funds. Thank you.